I greet you in the name of Jesus and invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Continue our study through the beautiful book of Philippians. I remember, I remember hearing a story of a farmer who had a beautiful farm, lush crops, just everything was picture perfect. Someone, a visitor came by and the visitor commented how nice of a farm you and God have going here. And the farmer thought for a bit and he said, thank you. And he said, you should have saw it when God had it all by himself. <laughs> and it almost sounds disrespectful from the farmer to say that. But the farmer had a point. And the farmer's point was, God expects us to use his creation to accomplish his purpose, or his resources. And I think that is so true in the Christian life. And that's kind of the direction of the message this morning. It's kind of maybe balancing God's work in us, what he does, and also what he expects from us. And that's kind of uh, maybe an over, some overarching thoughts of the passage that I'd like to cover. I would like to complete uh, Philippians chapter 2 this morning. I titled the message, Three, Dis three Disciplines and Three Disciples. Okay, so that's the segments we're gonna, going to break down the verses in, in Philippians, three disciplines and three disciples. And we're going to pick it up at, uh, at chapter 2, verse 12. Discipline. Maybe you could say application. Application follows doctrine. There was a, a coach in some for team, and I'm not even sure what sport it was, but pretty... Uh, he had, he had a prominent voice in, in training and disciplining his players to perform at peak performance. And here's, he said something profound. I read it. I thought about it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. Here's what he said. Now, this is, this is borrowed from a, 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 a coach that's wanting his players to get peak performance on the field. He said... I can forgive incompetence. You know what, incompetence, like some people just may not be cut out to be the, the, the pitcher or, or, or whatever. Some people are not cut out to be, to fit certain job descriptions. He said, I can forgive incompetence. He said, I can forgive lack of ability. There are people that just do not have certain abilities. I can forgive that. But he said, I cannot Forgive lack of discipline. And what he was saying is he expects his players to be working out and working out when nobody's watching in the gym, working out and working out and working out, not sleeping in, working out, working out, so that when they get to the field, they're at, they're at peak performance. I also read about another uh, in the same article. I read about a, a, a football player that was uh, uh, 
renowned football player. And when I think of football players, I think of, every now and then I meet a big guy, you know, and I'll say, hey, if I'm ever playing football, I want to be on your team. You know, you, when I think of football, I think of, of six foot six, 250 pounds, and totally in shape. And I am told, I don't even know this person, I've never heard the name, but I'm told that he was not that kind of a guy. You meet him on the street, and I look like, like well, hopefully a little bigger than me, but he, he didn't have that football image. But this article went on to say what most of the world doesn't know about his success is he would spend hours and hours not only working out, but watching the other teams play. So I guess everything's recorded, so they're going to play this team. So he would watch. It would take him three hours to watch a half a game. He would study the other players so carefully that he was that good that he, he could detect the play just before, I mean, just by observing their stance. A guy, and you know what, the guy that was, the, the opposition probably didn't even know he was giving it away. But by doing it over and over and over again in the field, this guy was watching and watching and watching it. He was able to predict the play just by little cues of their stance. And, okay, now I'm not promoting football. And I'm not promoting athletes and I'm not promoting sports. I'm promoting discipline. In the same article, come to the conclusion, and this writer said, Everyone is disciplined in something. Everyone. And I thought about that. What am I disciplined in? I do not spend hours and hours and hours watching the other football team. But what do I spend hours and hours of time, energy doing? That's discipline. Some are disciplined readers, some are disciplined hunters, some are disciplined, disciplined teachers, some are very disciplined at studying for tests, some are disciplined at, you, the, 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 list, the list goes on. I remember a preacher that was a very effective in communicating truth, and he was a very seasoned person, and he, he, said, he said this, this was a private conversation. He would probably be very disappointed if, I would, if, if, if he would know that I was relaying this. But he said, you know, sometimes people come to him and say, you really are gifted. And he said, that me, God definitely gave him a gift. But he said, there's also another factor. Hours and hours and hours and hours and hours I thought about a job, you know, we all have jobs. And if you, have, if you have a job that you did for 20 years, and let's say you worked 40 hours a week for 50 weeks a year, it's kind of maybe an average two weeks off a year, 40 hours for 50 weeks, and you did that for 20 years, after 20 years, you wanna guess how many hours you have in that profession? You got, if I did my math right, you got 40,000 hours of doing that. Now, I'm going to guess that a 40,000-hour person is going to be able to complete something uh, fairly skillful. My point is discipline happens 
even subconsciously, what, what, we, what we do over and over and over again. And my goal is to encourage us in the disciplined Christian life. So, now with that introduction, let's review the context. So we were in Philippians chapter 2. We just finished up the, the grand text that talked about Jesus being, uh, making his round trip where he was God himself and he intentionally veiled all, veiled all his deity and he became in the likeness of man, fashioned as a man. He was intentional not to make a reputation. He was intentional to be a, 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 appear as a servant. He was intentional to humble himself. He was obedient even to the death of, of the death of the cross and because of that God exalted him that's where we finished in our study in Philippians that's where and because of that God exalted him and maybe I should maybe I should say this yet do we remember what our theme is for Philippians what what's what's the overarching theme of the whole book of Philippians somebody call it out joy yes joy Philippians is a book or an epistle of joy so if you are struggling with being a joyful person and in the first message, we define joy. If you're struggling with being a joyful person, read the book of Philippians, saturate yourself, because you're going to find it's a, it's, a, it's a way of thinking. There's a sub-theme. The sub-theme through the whole book of Philippians is mind or thinking or remembering. In other words, what you think about. So what you think about is going to affect your joy. In chapter 1, there is a single mind. It was all about the gospel. Even in prison, Paul was rejoicing and being joyful. Not, not dependent on circumstances. Single mind. Chapter 2, submissive mind. I wonder if anybody can remember the four S's. I won't uh, get you to call them out, but important. Single mind in chapter 2, it is a submissive mind. And in chapter 2, it very... It, it, primarily deals with relationships. It talks about being of one accord, one mind, same love, don't do things through strife, no vain glory, lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourself, don't think of your own things, think of other, other people's things. And it's all about relationships. And the submissive mind is going to equal joy. Single mind will equal joy. Submissive mind will equal joy. And then from here, we're going to go into chapter 3 and chapter 4 and talk about the spiritual mind and the, secu and the secure mind. So with that introduction and context, let's uh, go to verse 12, where we're going to find the word, work out your own salvation. And I think what I'm going to do is uh, just for the sake of reading the text with the point. I'm just going to read the text. I'm not going to go through the whole text right now, but I'm just going to read verse 12. So verse 12 is discipline number one. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, the word wherefore is uh, sometimes a very neglected word. Whenever you come to wherefore or therefore, what you need to do is, is find out what it's there for. So in other words, Paul's coming, Paul just talked about Jesus. And he said, now because of that, 
Let me tell you something practical that you can apply. You know, doctrine is the foundation where duty will always rest. You aware of that? Some people don't think doctrine is that important and they kind of scoff their nose at doctrine. And what they don't realize is everything you do rests on the foundation of what you believe. I told you before that I'm doing something very, very enlightening this year. And that's going through the, uh, the New Testament is what I'm working on. Is every time you find a, an, a, a clear command, underline it. And I, just, I am just marveling over and over how few commands are in the Bible. You can have a whole chapter of doctrine. And like, here's a good example. Uh, so much doctrine. And then you come to the wherefore. Because of that, so establish your belief system and then work it out. So doctrine is, where the, is the foundation where duty rests. We will always do what we do because we believe what we believe. And you know, there's always been a tension and always will be a tension over, over works. Uh, you're aware of that. You've heard enough of voices. Some voices champion. We are, not, we are saved by grace, not of works. And that's the only verse they can bellow. And it's nothing about works. It's nothing about your performance. It's nothing about your obedience. It's nothing about your, you're saved by grace. Not of works. And then there's those that are champion. I'll show you my faith by my works. By the way, James said Abraham was justified by his works. That's a, that's a quote from the Bible. So there, was, there is always that tension over uh, what we believe about works. And I just think the Bible is so balanced. If we are Bible students, that's the only way you're going to be a balanced person in life. If you're a Bible student, we can run away with, we can pretty much establish anything you want to believe. If you grab a verse and maybe twist it a little bit, but knowing the Bible in its context and the, the, this issue of works is so balanced, maybe best balanced in this text. It's been a blessing to me to to find this nugget that I never really saw before. So we're into this subject of discipline or, or work. Verse 12 says, work out. Some people will take this verse and, and maybe preach a whole sermon on it and emphasize the fact that you need to work out. You need to be working at your salvation. It does not say work for your salvation. It says work out. And that's huge. That's, that's huge. In the next verse, we're going to see God working in. But this verse, we're seeing work out. So discipline number one, I will work out. In other words, I will do my part. So that's the discipline that you and I need. There was one, uh, actually Warren Wiersbe, he's the, the person that I, or the uh, commentary that I like is outline. He comes to this section and he calls it the ins and outs of the Christian life, working in and working out. So discipline number one is, I will work out my salvation. Just like the athlete spends hours in the gym, hours, nobody's praising him for his time in the gym, nobody does, but he does get recognized for his performance on the field. 
And my brother, my sister, Roger, thank you for uh, uh, highlighting spiritual warfare. It's real. We're in a battle. No one is going to, how should I say it? So much of what happens on the field of life is contingent on your time in the closet. And I can't emphasize that enough. And it's a challenge, tremendous challenge to me, but it is, a, it, is a, it is a firm belief. So just like the athlete spends hours, hours training, the soldier of the cross will spend hours in the closet. Therefore, Jesus beckons us and he says, come in, come in and shut the door, shut it. And that's where we soak in the word. That's where we meditate on him. And that's where we are... Uh, Abiding in the vine so we can be fruitful out on the field of life. Maybe another text that would say what at this point better is when Paul told Timothy, and Ray turned to Timothy, I thought maybe he's going to go to chapter 4, verse, verse 12, where Paul says, exercise thyself unto godliness. Did you ever pray? I did. Lord, make me a godly man. I, I, I heard in my, uh, I read in my studies that that's a meaningless prayer. Now, I don't know if I agree with that. Make me a godly man. God already has given us all things that pertain unto godliness, Peter tells us. It's all given, it's all there. All I need to do to be a godly man is to work it out and I won't do that without exercising myself unto godliness. I think discipline has a lot to do with resolve. I will and I will not. And I remember years, years ago, I, I, I shared a message on I will and I will not, something like that. And I think I remember uh, giving uh, uh, an exhortation or a challenge to write out 10 I wills and 10 I will nots. Stick it in your Bible and live by it. So healthy. Jonathan Edwards was a man of tremendous resolve. He's a, a man that uh, you can read. If you want a very interesting read, look up Jonathan Edwards' Resolves. And you'll get a whole list of his resolutions of life. Here's one. He said, I am resolved not to do anything that I would not be willing to do in the last hour of my life. Always recognizing that it could be that his last hour... Uh, discipline is resolved. The verse ends with working it out, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, this is serious. Fear, when's the last time you took some time and in fear and trembling, you were disciplining yourself to work out the promptings of the Holy Spirit? That what you knew was right, that which was generated, not from you, but from God working within you, and you in fear and trembling were working it out. So, what disciplines do you need to get serious about, and what disciplines do I need to get serious about? I don't need to tell you what disciplines you need to get serious about. We know. We know. We know what disciplines we need to get serious about because of God. Discipline number two, I will depend on God. 
And this is in verse 13. This is beautiful. Right after God, uh, Paul says, work out your own salvation, he says, for it is God which worketh in, both, in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, this is pretty exciting because God's working in us. And let me just stop right here. I'm going to venture to say that there are a lot of people in Christendom, hopefully not here, that simply can't work out, that can't live a successful Christian life because God is not working in. You don't grow into the Christian life. You must be born into the Christian life. You must be born again. And I don't want to complicate conversion. Unfortunately, there's so many people that don't know if they're a Christian. They hope. That's the most miserable place a person, a human being, will ever live. God never intended a person to wonder if he's saved or not. Just like a father would never, ever want his child to wonder if he's in or not in the family. But yet, I do understand on shallow commitments and even commitments at a young age, there are, there's a lot of questions. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that struggle. And that's, that's, that's sad. Don't overcomplicate conversion. It's simple. I don't care where you're at in life. I don't care what your past has been. You can today come to the cross and say, God, I am surrendering everything I am, everything always to you. And I'm going to tell you, you can expect a miraculous power to happen within you. It will happen. That's how it works. And I don't really care what happened prior to that. Uh, Unsecure people often is either a, a lack of deep commitment or a lack of faith. That's another really big one. They just simply can't believe what what God said. So let me just say that to say, if you don't have God working in you, you cannot work out your own salvation. And there there will be a miserable lifestyle of trying harder and trying harder and trying harder and never accomplish or or never being able to shine like, like lights in a dark world like we're going to come to in uh, the next discipline. So, so with that in mind, my brother and my sister, just let's, let's just refresh ourselves at the cross. And whatever your past has been, let's go back to the cross and let's say, God, I'm, just, I'm going to fully surrender and I am going to trust in the resurrection power of Jesus for whatever I need in discipline. And It is incredible that this verse says that God works in us both to will and to do. And that tells me that God is going to even give you desires. Did did any of you experience this? Yes. I hope there's a resounding yes. I know in my pre-conversion days, I don't remember a passion to to tell somebody about Jesus. I don't remember uh, hatred for sin. I don't remember listening to a rock song on the radio at work and thinking, this is horrible. But something happens at conversion. There is desires that that come in you to please God. And there's also a a hatred for what's wrong. That's God working in you. And that's pretty exciting. Power to will. Power to do. 
enable in grace to forgive, enable in grace to be honest. Here's who I am. Here's, a, uh, here's an example. This is what I'm struggling with. Uh, God can give you the, the will to do in purity, to witness, to serve, to, to whatever. And it's all because of God's resources in you. That's so exciting. Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God all rooted in you and waiting for you to discipline yourself in the closet, and it works out. So, discipline number one, discipline number two. Discipline number three. Let's look at verse 14 through 16. It says, oh, I don't like this one. No, I shouldn't say that. It's, it's convicting. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So, the discipline number three is, I will be different. I will be different than the world. People with the mind of Christ, people with a submissive mind, remember, that's the context, they, they simply stand out. There's three marks that I saw in, this, in the passage that I just read. Here's what they are. Number one, you will be cheerful and joyful in an unhappy world. Well, you can spot those folks out quickly. Secondly, you're going to be straight in a crooked world. Third, you'll be, re you'll be radiant in a dark world. Murmuring and complaining. I think the children of Israel championed this one. Unfortunately, God's people, God's people in the Old Testament, they murmured at the Red Sea. They saw the Egyptians chasing them. They murmured. They got to Merah. The waters were bitter. They murmured. They got to the wilderness, no food. They murmured. They got to Rephidim, they had no water, they murmured. They got to Kadesh Barnea, the spies came back and said, there's giants. Oh, they murmured and they wanted to, to uh, go back. And often the children of Israel, whenever something didn't go right, whoever was in charge took the hit. Poor Moses. I, I, I really pity Moses so many times. What an example of a man that would just go before the Lord. So do it all. I wonder if this is the greatest distinction of being separate from the world. I wonder. God dealt very harshly with the Old Testament. Remember, this is under the mind of Christ and the submissive mind. What if Jesus would have said, Bethlehem, this stinks. Nazareth, come on. What's with this? Now they're calling me a little bit illegitimate child? I mean... Really? Is this what I'm, I mean, okay, here comes the crowd. No space for me? Really? I mean, you, some, somebody write an essay, the complaints Jesus could have had. But it's so foreign. We, it, it's, almost, it's almost repulsive for me to imagine this, but I, I'm sometimes converse thinking helps us uh, get a hold of the point. What about when he did a miracle, and they said, you, you, you got the devil. You power the devil. Really? You got no respect for me? 
I'm God. Time to go to bed. Really? No pillow? Really? No home? No house? No address? I want to go to Jerusalem. I don't even got a donkey. I mean, I'm supposed to do all this. No donkey, no pillow, no home. No. And then he gets into Jerusalem. And, and, and a careful study of the Gospels will show four unfair trials where they stacked it every, every way they could against them. Four times. I'll tell you what, one unfair trial is enough for me. There's something about within us that just wants justice, right? Four times the complaints Jesus could have had. I'm talking about the submissive mind equals joy. You know, the crowds mobbed against him. And I wonder if the reason the crowds mobbed him and rose up against him and got angry is because through it all, he displayed a radiant, joyful peace. Kind of like the Anabaptists when they went to the stake. They were, the persecutors were upset because of the surrenderedness. I wonder how far away I have gotten from the mind of, the submissive mind of Christ that equals joy. Well, that was one mark of uh, being different from the world. Another mark is being straight in a crooked world. We could go to Matthew chapter 5 and, and look at the Sermon on the Mount where we find what a straight life is or a straight and narrow way is. The straight and narrow way includes how you respond when you tend to get angry and how you respond when you see a woman, how you respond when you are tempted to be dishonest. And you know what the issues in the Sermon on the Mount are? Adultery, I'm mean, sorry, anger is the first one. Second one is, uh, is lust. The third one is dishonesty. And the fourth one is, well, you could put divorce in there yet as well, or marital faithfulness. And then it's uh, non-resistance, or when you're mistreated, just turn the other cheek. Not treating people differently, just mutual love. That, those, that's straight living. And Jesus says, this world's crooked. In 1990, uh, there was a book published called The Day America Told the Truth. And these two men did an extensive survey. And there's staggering statistics in that book. But listen to this one. Just one, one of, just a little slice of the book. A hundred people were asked, or I don't know how many people, it came down to a percentage so that the term hundred is used to break it down. Out of every hundred people that were asked this question, here's how they responded. For $10 million, would you leave your family? 25% said they would. 25% of the polled people would leave their family for $10 million. For $10 million, would you become a prostitute for one week? 23% said yes. For $10 million... Would you go kill a stranger? Seven out of 100 said they would. That's a little sketchy. When you think of a crowd of 1,000 people, there's 70 in there that would kill for 10 million. Now, I know it's statistics, and I'm not putting a lot of confidence in statistics. But what, what I'm building on is being straight in a crooked world. 
I was meditating on this point, and I, I, don't, I don't like to be a doomsday kind of guy. You know, we're, everything's so bad. But I just thought, you know, let me just reflect on some of the news articles that I read in the last week. One week. Hmm. In light of straight living, in light of the straight and narrow way. My point is, straight living in a crooked world. North Lebanon School District owes the state 87000 Anybody read that the front page of the newspaper? Because they, I guess, gave wrong information about busing. I don't know how they did it. Uh, I, rem- I, uh, I know people that went to jail for marijuana. Front page of the Lebanon Daily News had an article by Tom Wolf, and it's. I think I, personally, I think it's appalling, legalizing marijuana. I recently read an article about a a bike ride, tenth annual bike ride without clothes, promoting some kind of cause. I, I remember reading about a woman that got arrested for being on the boardwalk without sleeves. That's right. In the 1900s, in America, there was a woman arrested on the boardwalk of a beach for, for appearing without sleeves. One step closer to Sunday hunting. It's another subject. Strong push for birth control across the counter for young girls that don't want to answer questions. Divorce rates, statistics. This is just, just things that I just kind of remember reading in, in the last week. Mass killings. Uh, not to mention the blurred lines. Sometimes I read things about, I just read an article from Focus on the Family, and the question was, should a Christian go to war? And he starts out, well, we don't want to get between you and your father. Listen to your father, because we're focused on the family. Uh, but, and I, we do realize that the first 300 years of history, there was no, ev- no, recorded, uh, no recorded incidents of church, Christian church members going to war. And he acknowledged, if you, then he actually acknowledged, maybe the Mennonites, the brethren, the Amish, he mentioned about four or five groups, that maybe they have a stronger voice on this. Then he said, but there's another way to think this through. And he said, have you ever heard of the just war theory? And then he builds his, his case, his thesis, on, on uh, Augustine in the, I forget what year he came on, and, and built the, the just war theory. In other words, and then he used the war on terror. He said, would you be okay with with uh, terror coming to this country and see what we're doing. We're using logic and getting away from Scripture, the submissive mind of Christ, Jesus, the example of Jesus. And so what my point is living straight in a crooked world, and it's just a call for a discipline to, be, to, be, uh, to, to live by the teachings of the Scripture the best that we know how. Not because we have to, because it's working out of us from our closet time with the doctrine that is so beautiful. So the third, the the last one, I'll just simply say it, radiant in a dark world. And I don't need to tell you that you live straight in a crooked world and you're you're going to be noticed. Dave Eberle spoke last week, and he said, he mentioned the times where people say, oh, you have a nice, you have a nice family. 
and don't ever let that go to our heads or anything, but, but let's, be, let's acknowledge that if you're going to live straight by the word of God, the straight and narrow way, in a crooked and a perverse generation, you're going to shine as lights. And some people say, oh, I can't preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Did you ever hear that phrase? Preach the gospel when necessary, use words. I just heard it this week. And I thought that through. I, I like it. I really like it. But I think we have to be very careful that if we never open our mouth and say why we do what we do or who we are, what we are, they still won't know. So I say preach the gospel with a lifestyle and with words. So straight living in a crooked world, radiant in a dark world, joyful people. Lastly, and very quickly, three disciples that I believe were very disciplined and had the submissive mind of Christ. The first one was Paul. In verse 17, he says, Yea, if I be offered unto the, un, upon the faith and service of your faith, I rejoice and I joy and rejoice with you. For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. That's just a little nugget there. Paul gives a testimony. And it's, it's beautiful. I really believe Paul had the submissive mind of Christ. And I believe he was a champion at discipline. There are other scriptures that, that, that uh, clearly talk about his discipline lifestyle. But this whole thing about, I want to be offered upon the sacrifice. There's a little nugget. You have to dig it out for yourself sometime. In the Old Testament, there was an offering. And did you ever read the word libation? Libation or drink offering? Same thing, synonymous. It would kind of look like this. Somebody brings an offering, a big animal sacrifice, and then while the offering is complete as a token of surrender to God, they would take, they would usually use a, a wine or some kind of liquid, and they would open it up, and they would go whoosh, on the sacrifice, and it would go, a puff of smoke would just kind of climax the, the offering. That's the illusion Paul says, your faith is a sacrifice, and if I die, I want it to be like, well, I'm kind of like that poof, at that little climax of your sacrifice. Do you ever wonder why we sing, would you be poured out like wine upon the altar for God? Would you be broken? Would you? That's an allusion to the drink offering, the libation, and Paul says, I'd love to do that. Wow. That's a disciple. Next one is Timothy. Verse 19, he says, But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's, but you know the proof of him that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. So, real quickly, from Timothy, number one, we're talking about disciplines and dis disciples. He was, a disciple, he was a disciple that was very disciplined. Number one, you talk about an attribute, or a, is that the word, uh, something that was appreciated, sincere care. People don't know how much we know. 
There's so many people that love to flaunt knowledge and flaunt gifts and flaunt. People don't know, I mean, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And every person sitting in this room knows what it feels like to be cared for. And I would to God that somehow I could cultivate that gift in my life and we all could just care. We will never care for every person. We can't do it. But somehow, Timothy earned a reputation of, I have nobody else that would so naturally care for your state. I just heard the uh, testimony of a, a pastor far from, far from here that he held incredible authority. And, you know, I don't know what goes through your mind as you heard that. Mm. that, that that's the way it was presented to me. He held incredible authority. And then the testimony was he held the authority because he cared so deeply for the people. He would literally spend a half a day of his busy schedule to help a teenager with her, with her algebra lesson. So when he spoke, everybody listened because they knew he cared. And that, that's, just, that's just an example for us as, as brothers and sisters care, a mark of discipleship. Uh, someone has said every, every person will live in Philippians 1.21 or Philippians 2.21. Philippians 1.21 is where the, we find a single mind for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. 2.21 says all seek their own and the things which are not Jesus Christ's. Timothy earned a reputation of he just was all about Christ and nothing of himself. The third mark of Timothy was he was proven. In verse 22, it says, you know the proof. You know, he wasn't drafted on his first missionary journey. He, was, he come to the Lord, and sometimes I, I wonder if we set people in a dangerous place early in their Christian life. Actually, there was one con conversion from, uh, he someone was converted from uh, the uh, comedy stage show, and he found the Lord, and he told the evangelist, I'm ready to go with you. No, 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 you go find a church. No, 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 I'm ready for the show. And you, you know what I'm saying? Timothy was proven. First missionary journey, he was a remarkable, outstanding young man. Second missionary journey, years later, it says the church gave high recommendations about this man. Now, all of us are part of a church, and wouldn't, if, if, an, if, uh, if Apostle Paul came by and he he. he that's what happened with Timothy. He asked the church, the elders in the church, what do you think about Timothy? You can act, look it up in Acts 16. And they gave high recommendations for him. He was proven at home. So big. Last but not least, Epaphroditus. I had to practice that one a little bit. Epaphroditus. And actually, I'm, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it. Verses 25 through 30, I'm just going to summarize some of the, the, the attributes that are listed about Epaphroditus, he had risked his life from a dangerous journey from Philippi down to Paul. And he said, I just want to be there and minister to your needs. By the way, he, this was in a time where if you were in a prison in Rome, you didn't feed and shelter, well, maybe shelter, but you, didn't feed, you weren't fed and clothed on Rome's system. You depended on family and outside sources. So they knew that. So Philippi Church sent Epaphroditus 
down to Rome with a gift, material needs, so he could minister to this man that helped build, uh, plant the church. And Paul gave a well-rounded testimony of him. He called him my brother. He called him my fellow laborer. He called him my fellow soldier. He called him your messenger. He says he ministered to my wants. And he actually said, writing back to Philippi, he said, you want to know something? Epaphroditus was down here sick unto death, and he was distressed about it. And you know why he was distressed? He was distressed because he was afraid you would hear it, and he didn't want you to hear that he was sick, and he was suffering because of that. You talk about an earmark of discipline and a submissive mind that equals joy. And he, he, sent, he was sent back with this letter just after he recovered from a near-death sickness. And in that letter it said, now when Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus comes back, honor him. In other words, uh, receive him with gladness and hold him in reputation. Isn't that ironic? Jesus made himself no reputation. There are people that want to build their reputation, and it doesn't work. But there are those that just simply serve and serve. And then there's another voice that comes along and says, hold that person in reputation. That was Epaphroditus, and I know that's what you want. And it says he regards not his life. He doesn't even think about his life. Sometimes in missions we say, well, is it safe? In Epaphroditus, that wasn't even an issue. Is it safe to go across the mountains to Rome? I'm going because my heart is just bleeding for Paul. He got sick and almost died there. He has to go back the same way with a letter that you and me have been blessed to go through. Aren't you glad that uh, Paul, that he faithfully carried the letter back? And he faithfully carried the letter back. So hopefully... In going through that, you'll do three things. You will choose in your heart to say, I will work out my salvation. Secondly, you'll say, I will depend on God. I'm not, I'm not going to try to arrive on my own strength. I'm going to depend on the work of the cross. I'm going to depend on the Holy Spirit Christ and the word in me. That's, 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 that's where the glory is going to be. And thirdly, I'm going to recognize that this is a very crooked world. And I think maybe sometimes we should think about that more and realize that we, just, we don't fit. We don't fit. We're strangers and pilgrims. And we say, I will be different. I will work out my salvation. I will depend on God to work in and through me. And I will be different from the world. And who knows? You, no, not who knows. You will leave your mark on the era that you live. You will. Just like Paul did, just like Timothy did, just like Epaphroditus did. You will too. And may God bless you in that effort. Let's all stand for a closing prayer. Father in heaven, it's been a blessing to look through this epistle of joy. And we admit with you, to you, God, that the submissive mind, the mind of Christ, is very convicting. And we come to you, God, with a confession. 
we're sorry for the many times we have, been in, we have not showed submission to your will. And we're asking for forgiveness and a cleansing. And we will commit in our hearts, God, to work out our salvation and allow you to work in and through us. And we will acknowledge and be okay with being very different in a crooked and a perverse world. Thank you for allowing us to shine as lights. Give us power and grace to do it. Make us a blessing to others and someone, especially today and next week. And make us more and more like Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.